how to say this city. Um, I don't have access to her right now. So in September of 1985 in a city in Brazil, which I'm going to butcher as Joyeania, they scuttled the Joyeania Institute of Radiotherapy. They just abandoned the building, took what they thought were the important assets and left. Criminals removed the remaining assets and took it down to the local junkyard to sell. The junkyard started taking it apart and hiving off every part they could, not realizing that cesium-137 was in this antiquated radiological machine that had been discarded. As they dismantled it, they ran across a series of glowing blue stones that fascinated them and became a little bit of an allure in the community and people were interested in them. Children were interested to play with them and they sold them. And then the junkyard owner's wife became ill. They were trying to figure out what was going on with her and realized that somehow she had contacted radiation sickness. And it wasn't just a modest illness. Four people died, including one child. And before they could get their arms around it, they realized that 40 homes in the community had been contaminated. They were not alert to what was present with them in this community. What seemed like nothing but fun glowing rocks turned into a radiological disaster. Suddenly, everyone in Brazil became alert to what they were unconscious to. Something was dwelling in those glowing blue stones that no one knew about. It proved tragic. Romans chapter 7 is a tutorial on what indwells in our flesh, but it's not glowing blue stones that are fun to play with, but it's our flesh that houses in our bodies the presence of indwelling sin that we've inherited from our forefather, Adam. We have now seen the enemy in Romans chapter 7, and the enemy is us. In our flesh. But before he ends this chapter, we are going to see also that God has brought Jesus Christ to give us hope, to give us vitality, to give us power to live a life that brings us to flourish and to be pleasing to him. Come with me to the last paragraph of this great and enigmatic chapter in the book of Romans. I'm glad you're here this morning. Romans 7, 21 to 25 is kind of a summary. It's the bow on top of the package of Romans 7. So I find it to be a law. I'm reading 721. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. 
wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Here, the word of the Lord. This morning, I want to go two different directions as we look at the summing paragraph to Romans chapter 7. First, I want to ask, what exactly does Romans chapter 7, verses 21 through 25, teach us as followers of Jesus Christ? There are three core ideas that we'll look at. But secondly, since those core ideas are true, what are the implications of that for living? Why does that make a difference in our lives? Further, how does that make a difference in how we live? That's where we are this morning as we finish this chapter. What does this passage teach to followers of Jesus? There are three core thoughts to shape our living. The first two relate to each other. They're two sides of a coin that we need to lay hold of, and both sides are true. First, are you ready for this? We are wretches. And sin is worse than we thought. This is the Apostle Paul. This is the gospel preacher whose life was so radically transformed when he placed his faith in Jesus Christ. What does he say? Verse 24. Wretched man that I am. We tend to minimize sin's affront to God. Well, it's, it's, it's not too bad. Um, I, I crossed the line. I knew I was pushing the edge, and I went ahead and crossed the line. I, in fact, I, I, once I did it, I, I, I crossed the line, and the crossing of the line became the practice of my life, and lo and behold, I didn't get hit by lightning. A train didn't run into me. It's, sin must not be too bad. Those preacher guys make it out to be a lot more than it is. Well, what I would say to you is that the scripture makes sin out to be devastating before a God who is holy and perfect and without sin altogether. In fact, let's dip back into 713. It's one verse that we're kind of saving to this point. It didn't really accent it a lot. He says in verse 13 of sin, it was sin producing death in me through what is good. And the good is a reference to the law and how that awakened him to the fact that it was sin. In order that sin might be shown to be sin. Yes, sin is sinful. And through the commandment, the law pointing it out, might become sinful beyond measure. It's about the gravity of the sinfulness of sin. It's not a nothing burger to a God who is holy. It's a high offense. Do you know the lyrics to Amazing Grace have been changed? John Newton wrote it many years ago. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound 
that saved, here it is, a wretch like me. Now, some have found that word troubling. And so much so that they, they, they did not want to view themselves in such a way. John Newton self-evidently lays it out. Yeah, the rather sophisticated critic says, I'll tell you. That was John Newton speaking about himself in that way. And he was in the slave trading industry. And that was probably good, a good characterization of him. He was a wretch. But since that's not to be applied to all of us and a unique one-off and how nasty he was, we're going to change those words. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saves and sets me free. You'll find that in some renditions of the hymn. You say, well, why did you do that? Well, too many people objected. They didn't like how they felt when they read wretch or, or it, it seems so negative. Why are we doing negative? You know, there's all kinds of modes of preaching. We have a particular flavor here. Uh, my, the best definition I understand of preaching is just truth poured through a personality. And because we're all different, everybody preaches differently. But in some traditions, there's a, preaching is not primarily a monologue. And by the way, I I don't view preaching as a monologue. I view heralding the word of God as a dynamic interchange between the spirit of God and your heart and the text and the privilege that is mine to bring your heart together to the text. So I don't view this as a monologue. I think there's a lot going on in the room and it's it's really exciting what God has called me to do. But there, there's, there's some preaching traditions that, that, you know, they get stuff going back and forth between the congregation. The congregation's talking to the preacher, and he's talking back. And he'll even be responsive to what's going on. And then they get this stuff going on where it's not only congregation to preacher, preacher to congregation, back and forth. Then they'll get going back and forth with each other. And the preacher will get, you know, they'll be in a great vein. And he'll say, turn to your neighbor and say, God is prepared to give you your best life now. And so you'll hear a hubbub. They're all turning to each other and say, you know, God's going to give you your best life now. God's giving you your best life now. And then he'll take off and go into further heights. Well, I, I thought about, well, maybe we should just jump into that this morning. Turn around and tell your neighbor, you're a wretch before a holy God. And you know, have your neighbor say, you're a wretch before a holy God. But then I thought, nah, we probably ought not do that. <laughs> hey, how was church this morning? Well, I went and the, you know, sitting next to a person looked at me and said, hey, you're a wretch before a holy God. We laughed, but according to the word of God, it is true. And it is not until and unless that we see ourselves there that we will ever get around to seeing just what a big deal Jesus Christ is and how glorious it is to know him. Because you know what he does? He saves wretches like us. It's wonderful. Paul came to the end of himself. This is none other than the Apostle Paul who's saying this of himself. Wretched man that I am. Miserable with what he recognized present in his own flesh. That before he was unconscious to. Remember he said earlier, I didn't even know how much covetousness had filled my heart until I read in the law, do not covet. And then as soon as I read that, I began to discover all manner of covetousness in my heart. The good law that is holy showed us for who we really are. We don't appreciate Jesus until we get there. 
do we appreciate Jesus. Ray Stedman, a pastor for years in Silicon Valley in Palo Alto, California, wrote this. There are teachers who teach that this passage in Romans 7 is something a Christian goes through but wants. Then he goes out of it and moves into Romans chapter 8, never to return to Romans chapter 7 again. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Even as mighty a man as Paul went through it again and again. This is a description of what every believer will go through many times in his experience because sin has the power to deceive us and cause us to trust in ourselves even when we are not aware that we are doing so. The law is what will expose that evil force and drive us to this place of wretchedness that we might then, in devotion of spirit, cry out, Lord Jesus, it's your problem. Take it. End of quote. And he responds, that cry. Kelly gave me a great quote this morning of C.S. Lewis. Man does not know how bad he is until he tries to be good. And isn't that true? We are wretches and sin is worse than we thought. That's not the end of what the Word of God says. Jesus Christ Second core thought, Jesus Christ is a deliverer and grace is greater than we could have imagined. Look at verse 25. It's strange. It's a moment of praise, a doxology which sprouts up like Jack and the Beanstalk's beanstalk. I mean, overnight it rises. I mean, we are, we are, we are dredging this bad, tough thought, true thought. Wretched man that I am, you think, man, we're a long way away. But then he, he, he can't help it. As soon as he understands who he really is, he is reminded freshly of who Jesus really is. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, this rhetorical question, who will deliver us from the body of this death? He answers in the next verse, it's Jesus Christ who is the deliverer. He saves us from ourselves and the weakness of our flesh and our proclivity, our natural bent, the gravitational pull of our flesh toward sin. I love God's plan to save us. The text doesn't leave us alone in this desperate place. We are wretches and sin is worse than we thought. It doesn't leave us there, but it is not until we get there that we can really appreciate that Jesus is the deliverer and grace is greater than ever that we could imagine. Yes, verse 23 is true. Yes, verse 24 is true. But 25 is yet a cause for thanks. God has brought a deliverer in Jesus Christ. Do you know him and have you experienced that deliverance? There's nothing like it in life. You are transformed. You are changed. The rhetorical question is answered by Paul himself. There is a deliverer and it is Jesus. Hope is found for our sinful flesh in the person of Christ who offered his sinless flesh for our redemption on the cross on Good Friday. Christ lives within all who receive him. There is more grace than we could ever imagine. And doesn't that stand to reason as being correct because of John 1.16? What we get in Jesus Christ is, what did John say? Grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. I stand at the front of the line among you this morning as a person in need of grace upon grace. 
And what we get in Jesus Christ is grace upon grace. Yes, core thought number one, we are wretches and sin is worse than we thought. Yes, core thought number two, Jesus is the deliverer and grace is greater than we could have imagined. Core thought number three, and it's the logical conclusion to this chapter. As long as we live, we battle indwelling sin in our flesh. Look at verse 21. Look at verse 22. Isn't this the tension? For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Sounds like the woman of God of Psalm 1. The man of God of Psalm 1. On his law she meditates day and night. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law. Waging war against the law of my mind. And making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. What an incredible description of the battle. You say, Eric, what's verse 25? It's the last verse. Is it just a tack on? No, not at all. It's like cliff notes on Romans 7. Remember cliff notes in college? People were always running off to the bookstore to buy cliff notes if they didn't want to read the book. It was like a cogent summary of what substance was there. Here's the cogent summary. I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh... I serve the law of sin. That's the battle. That's the tension. We work out our own salvation between that tension of a mind delighting in the word of God and a flesh with the presence of indwelling sin. And that battle defines how we live and work out our own salvation. Now, we don't need to spend any more time on the third core idea because that's actually been the message the last two weeks. And he just summarizes it here in verse 25. Well, Eric, if, if, if that's what this passage teaches, what are the implications of that then? What does this passage mean to followers of Jesus? This passage speaks to our heart in at least three different ways. Think of it with me and bring your heart out to him. First, death will be a welcome release from the curse. Now, let me just stop and say, a little sidebar here, I don't have a death wish. I actually desire to live to be an old man as long as the faculties of my mind are, you know, at full throttle. I mean, since they're about 35% today, it may not, you know, it may not be bode very well, but I don't have a desire to die. But a follower of Jesus looks at and experiences death and anticipates death in a way that a person who does not follow Jesus does not. We live differently. We die differently. Death will be a welcome release from the curse. We get super tethered to this world and hold on to every vestigial of life. I fear that many followers of Jesus in the West and in America Their life verse, the way we live, a verse that might characterize how they live, would sound more like Schlitz Beer's old jingle. We only go around once in life. We better grab all the gusto we can, which is a page out of the Epicurean playbook. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. We better go to that next thing and be involved in that next activity and plan that because we're going to die. You know what? We are going to die. That's true. But for the believer in Jesus, death will be a welcome release from the curse. 
Have you thought of that? Sin entered and death came. We, the, the curse. It's why we sing it at Christmas. It's worthy to be thought of this morning. Joy to the world. No more let sin and sorrow reign, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings known as far as the curse is found. The curse of sin in death is pursuing us, all of us mortals. We too shall die. But what about the Christian in death? Where are we? Are we doing this right? This passage helps. Because this passage says, when we die, we'll be released from our fallen bodies in the presence of indwelling sin. In that sense, the battle will be over. I went to the funeral and hosted a funeral yesterday for a good friend. I just want you to know that gospel Christians face death differently than people who do not know the Lord. We sorrow not as those who have no hope. You know, it's interesting to look how death was viewed in the Old Testament. Death was greeted as something positive because it was released from the awful curse that came with sin. In fact, they, they have a way of, of describing it in terms of being gathered with the fathers. That was their allusion to death. Now, in part, it was related to how bodies were prepared for death when someone died, wrapped them up in strips of cloth and soaked the strips of cloth in uh, spices that, that would make aromas so that as the flesh rotted in the burial room, it, the smell would be mediated by all of the aroma juice they put on the strips that wrapped the body. But then, when the flesh had decomposed after a long period of time, and there was nothing left but the bone structures, and all the bones had fallen apart because the tendons, the sinew, the muscles, everything was gone, they'd go in there, and they'd gather up the bones. And they had a big box. It was called an ossuary box. And, you know, great-great-grandpa was on the bottom. Great-great-grandma. It was a family burial place. Then it was great-grandpa and great-grandma. If mortality tables went as they should, they don't always. Uh, then it was grandma and grandpa. And then it was dad and mom. And they would throw the bones in the box. And this was alluded to as being gathered to their fathers. That's one part of the illusion. But also the illusion is that they harbored or hope for life after death. I mean, you take Job. This is way before the resurrection, a contemporary of Abraham who said, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, I shall stand and with my flesh, I will see God. And the prospect of life after death in believing death is extraordinary. The reconstituted of what we now know, this side of the resurrection, of our resurrected bodies will be extraordinary. We will be released from the curse. Death 
will be a welcome release from the curse. Is that how we think about death? Secondly, our resurrection holds the promise of a new body free from the perils of indwelling sin. I read this quote from D.L. Moody uh, yesterday at at the graveside. I often do. Um, Someday you'll read in the papers that Moody is dead. Don't believe a word of it. At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I was born of the flesh in 1837. I was born of the Spirit in 1855. That which is born of the flesh may die. That which is born of the Spirit will live forever. He's going to be given a body, what he calls, liken unto his body. In the promise of the resurrection, we anticipate a new body. Often we are first to think of our health. Yeah, Eric, I'm looking forward to my new body. Why? No arthritis in my new body. Well, and that, that, that is a good thought. My body won't be racked with disease. I'm going to get a new body in the resurrection. Yeah, Eric, all my aches and pains will be gone. You know, I'd say, why don't we all raise our right hands and say amen, but, you know, our, our arthritis and aches and pains don't even let us do that. We think first of our health. Can you imagine a body? How about this? Not tainted with indwelling sin and its gravitational pull. Does that sound inviting to you? No more temptation. No more tug, drag on our yearnings to please the Lord with the holy life. Living apart from sin. Can you imagine that? You know what the answer to that question is? No, we can't because all we've ever known is the presence of that indwelling sin. But our resurrection holds the promise of a new body, free from the battle. Yes, someday the battle will be over. We were rollers when our children grew up and we went on vacation, summer flyers. Our daughter dubbed us rollers. And... uh, Pacing our budget together, we drove wherever we went. And we'd pound miles into the ground, you know, while we went. We went to a lot of places. Get up real early in the morning and have huge driving days. We drove 4,600 miles one two-week period and uh, had a great time. Saw a lot of great stuff. But the kids, we'd help them anticipate the trip. We'd tell them what's involved. And, of course, from the back seat, um, you know, 30 minutes out, you know, after they woke up, you know, they're asking, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Because the ideal in their mind was what we had described and what had captured their imagination, and they had that image in their mind. I ask you this morning, are we there yet in our mind and heart anticipating in a winsome way a resurrection into a new body When Jesus comes, a body likened to his body apart from the perils of indwelling sin. Are we even thinking that thought? And if we think that thought, do you think that reshapes how we view death? Now again, I don't have a death wish. It isn't, you know, 
Jim Jones and the Kool-Aid's coming out here in a little bit. Let's all just check out today. But do we have a Christian view of the end, of our bodies, of what will be, of what is coming? And is our heart full of that kind of hope, that kind of vitality? Finally, our hearts should be full of Romans 7.25. Jesus Christ gets us through this mess. 24 is dark, 25 is bright. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The battle is real. The battle is hard. But there is Jesus, the deliverer, who will deliver us. He answers it. Jesus Christ will deliver us. And God has sent him for such a purpose. We're all familiar Refamiliar, acquainted with, we see the picture regularly now of war, war in Ukraine. We know what that looks like. The battles are ugly. 723, I see this waging war against the law of my mind. We're in a war, we're in a battle. Remember, I fought a good fight. We looked at that before. Tough. Jesus, the deliverer, has come. May 8th, 1945 was V-E Day, Victory in Europe Day. Think of all the carnage in Europe, all the lives that were lost. World War II came to an end in Europe. There was a cessation of the conflict. What a happy day. They danced in the streets. They celebrated in America and in Europe. Someday the battle will be over. Knowing this can fuel our perseverance. Can give us courage to battle on. How was your courage this morning? How is your stamina? What kind of shape is your hope tank in? For believers in Jesus Christ, this is going to end very well. Thanks be to God who has provided in Jesus Christ all that we need for life and godliness. Let us give ourselves to him with all of our might. Let's pray. Father, use your word by the Spirit in our lives this morning. I pray for those who are engaged in a regular practice of breaking your law. I want you to break that dominance this morning and bring them afresh to repentance and the glory of the deliverer powerfully at work in their lives. I want you, Lord, to affirm those who get out of bed each day put their feet on the ground and say, Lord, I want to fulfill your purpose for my life today. For those who actually are learning more and more about what Jesus was saying when he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Oh God, demand what you will. And we see your demands in the law. But your demands bring us to the weakness of, of our flesh and indwelling sin. 
Thank you for the victory that is in Christ. Help us so tack to him in the sailing of our living. We would find in him afresh this morning one sufficient to deliver and give us victory and give us help. We all need it. And I ask for it this morning. Teach us as a congregation how to live life. Teach us as a congregation how to die in a way that's pleasing to you because we know Jesus Christ is our Savior. Again, Lord, I would pray for the Spirit of God to run after our souls. None of us live very long. Soon they'll host our funeral someplace. While we live, may we found in a responsive posture toward this one who loved us and gave himself for us. In whose name I pray.